Thank you and good morning. That's, uh, that's quite a story. Uh, there are only two possible sources for that story. And those of you who are familiar with our military industrial complex will know uh, that there is uh, the doctrine of mutually assured destruction. <laughs> and it's not a good idea to begin to regale publicly uh, stories about one's past uh, without recognizing that I too have nuclear weapons that I can detonate. <laughs> so a call will be going out to my little sister. No, but it's a, it's a blessing to be with you today. And I wonder if uh, as we begin, we could just have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you in this day for this opportunity that you have given us and for the mercy that you bestow upon us. We recognize that if it weren't for your mercy, we wouldn't be allowed to come. We wouldn't be brothers in Christ. When you saw us, you'd just pour out your wrath upon us because that's what we deserve. But we thank you, Father, that in your infinite wisdom and mercy, you gave your son. And when you see us, we are covered and hid with Christ. We thank you for that, Father. And if you've given us Christ, which is the greatest gift that can be given, that can be received, you will not withhold from us the wisdom that we require today for the challenges that lie ahead. We thank you that you know the end from the beginning and everything that is occurring in the course of our life, you know it now. Though it be a surprise to us, it won't be to you. Thank you that you'll allow us to walk in wisdom and grace and humility and to honor you in the midst of our generation. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. 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 Over a hundred years ago, a French philosopher and social scientist by the name of Emile Durkheim wrote the following words. He said, where mores are sufficient, laws are unnecessary. And where mores are insufficient, laws become unenforceable. He wrote it over 100 years ago, but if you listen again, you'll, you'll note how timely and how timeless those words are. Where mores, which are values, norms for behavior, virtues, where these are sufficient, where they have been effectively, painstakingly, deliberately instilled into the hearts and minds of young people, or anyone for that matter, then laws no matter how just, no matter how true, will become unnecessary. Why? Because there will be a deeper law, a deeper ethic that has been rooted into the heart of young people, making laws, however right, however true, unnecessary. You won't need to hang a sign that says, do not steal, when there is a young person who has been taught again and again the value and respect for other people's persons and their property. This is good. Tragically, the opposite is also the case. Where mores, virtues, values, ideals, norms are insufficient, when institutions have failed, when communities have failed, where families have failed, where parents have failed, where fathers have failed, where father figures have absolved themselves of the responsibility to speak and pour into the lives of other people, especially when they say, well, those are not my kids. They're not my neighbors. I don't know them. We don't have kinship bonds. Well, then in such circumstances, laws become unenforceable. 
It doesn't matter how many signs you hang that says, do not steal, do not rape, do not murder. It doesn't matter what sanctions you apply to young people. It doesn't matter if you apply to them high rates of restitution. It won't deter them. It doesn't matter if you uh, are retributive and punitive, as we tend to be in our criminal justice system today. It won't deter them. It doesn't matter how long you incapacitate or warehouse them. It won't deter them. It doesn't matter if you apply sanctions to them that are so steep and that are intended to make their peers deterred and not engage in the same behavior. It won't matter because where mores are insufficient, where institutions and families and men have failed, then laws become unenforceable. I'll never forget the day that my dad came home from work one day. It was the summer of 1984. I don't know where you were in the summer of 1984. I was 10 years old, and I was riding my bike uh, off of Duncan Avenue where my parents had purchased a little row house uh, after they had immigrated from the Dominican Republic uh, about 12 or 15 years prior to that. That neighborhood that I grew up in in Jersey City, not uh, too far from here, had been devastated. It had been previously a working class enclave. Where we lived was up the street from what had become the notorious Duncan Housing Projects. In the 70s, that area had been devastated by soldiers who were traumatized, returning from the Vietnam War, who left as children and returned as broken men, so many of them. And in order to cope with their traumatic experiences while they were there, they were introduced to heroin. And they brought that thirst for heroin back with them, and the neighborhood was devastated. The second gut punch that followed in the early 80s, you may recall, was the scourge of crack cocaine, which further debilitated and destabilized communities like Jersey City. And that's where I grew up. But I was 10 years old, and so I was, to some extent, insulated from the realities of what was happening, even though school kids would come to class, and I'd be able to recognize later all of the signs of burgeoning trauma that they were experiencing. But as I rode my bike that day, I was approached by three kids also on bikes. I knew them all, at least two by reputation, one a bit uh, closer. His name was Ryan. He was a good-hearted kid. Dim of wit, but a good-hearted kid. <laughs> he was my grade mate. Uh, he was a couple of years older than me. He'd gotten left back a couple of times, but he really was a good kid. The other two who were on bikes, uh, that was Andrew and Michael. I knew them from afar. They were the types of kids who had a reputation. They were tough. They were savvy. They demanded respect and got it from all of the other kids. And strangely, although I didn't understand why, they demanded and got respect from a fair number of adults in our community as well. Andrew and Michael were off to the side, circling, kind of like vultures, although I didn't understand why at the time. Ryan drew near, and he said, hey, and I said, hey, and he said, you want to hang out with us today? Oh, 
that's big time for a kid like me growing up on Duncan Avenue in Jersey City. Because Andrew and Michael, these, these guys were, were big time. They had a certain reputation. I had no reputation. I was just a kid who came from an intact home. I was just a relatively smart kid. But I wasn't cool. Andrew and Michael were cool. So I jumped at the chance. And just as I was about to take off with my newfound acquaintances to get into what, who knows what adventures, my dad happened to pull up in his car. I understood later my dad providentially showed up with his car. He parked it on Mallory Avenue in order to get home. Well, when he saw me and he saw the kids that I was with and knew that I had never been around them before, he comes out of his car. He draws near to me. We exchange a greeting that is time-worn in Latin American tradition uh, where a young person asks for a blessing and says, La bendición. And my father would reply, Dios te bendiga. May God bless you. It's a tradition that I continue uh, to pass on to my own children and hopefully they to theirs. As we're exchanging this greeting, I see that my dad has a look of trepidation and concern in his eyes. And my dad asks a pithy question. He says, who are those boys? And sensing the trepidation and the concern in his eyes and wanting to allay it and not wanting him to in any way interfere with my big chance, I said, don't worry, Dad. They're good. My dad looked at me, I think... Uh, planting the seeds of early psychologists in me, just, just looked intently in my eyes, looked through me, and asked this pithy question. He said, son, who told you they were good? Did they tell you they were good? I was only 10 years old, but I understood when my dad was asking me a question that was inviting me to self-reflection, to critical introspection. And that it was also a leading question. So I look back at my dad. And in the crossroads of that moment. Which would literally come to define my life. I picked up my bike. And followed my dad home. I turned around to see my acquaintances. But I noticed that they had driven far off. In fact, it was when my father drew near that they drew off. Years later it would make a reminder in my mind of that proverb that says the wicked flee with no one pursuing there was something about my dad's bearing about his character something intangible about him about his authority about his love about his care that rather than to draw those kids in as it would for me it repulsed them because when mores are insufficient, even the law that ought to operate in the way that we interact becomes unenforceable. I'm so thankful for my dad in that day. And I'm reminded as well of the fact that the scripture says, train a child in the way that they should go. And when they're older, they won't depart. Now to be sure, they may digress I don't know if there's any person in this room who was raised in faith who will admit, at some point I digressed. 
but we didn't depart. Something drew us back, and that something is deeply rooted godly mores, virtues, values that speak to us of a truth. And when the scripture says train a child in the way they should go, that means that there is a path that corresponds to the way that each child is made. And as parents, as fathers, as representatives of institutions, it's our responsibility to ask the Lord, what is the way for this child? Do you remember in the book of Judges, a man named Manoah, his wife is visited by an angel. And the man Manoah says, I pray that that angel would return so that he can teach us what is the rule for this boy and how shall we raise him? There is a way that corresponds perfectly to each child. Our problem oftentimes as adults, as parents, is that rather than to beseech God for the way that we should raise and instruct and train our children, we come up with our own way. We come up with society's dictates. We come up sometimes with, well, that's how I was raised. And when our children begin to digress, then the word of God also says, a fool, it's folly, twists his own way, and then his heart becomes irritated against God. Have you ever shaken your fist to heaven and said, like, why is this happening to me, Lord? And if the Lord would deign with a response, he said, well, you did this. Why are you blaming me, dual bag? I'm thankful that my father trained me in the way that I should go so that when he spoke those words to me in that crossroad, rather than to rebel against his authority and say, this is my chance, I just yielded, accepted, and I picked up my bike and followed him. Just like the word asks us, commands us to pick up our cross and father our problem. Amen? Years later, uh, I became a clinical psychologist. I had an inkling to become a pastor. My dad was a bivocational pastor. He was coming home that day from uh, driving the New Jersey Transit bus through Jersey City. That's what he did by day. By night and over the weekend, uh, he was a shepherd of a small Spanish Pentecostal church in Hoboken. One day I approached my dad and I said, Dad, I'm going to be a pastor like you. And again, my dad spoke to me through these pithy questions that always invited reflection. He said, son, why do you want to be a pastor? And I said, well, well, uh, folks at church say I, I look like you and uh, I walk like you, uh, carry myself like you. I, I figure I should just go into the family business. And uh, Wouldn't that make you proud? And he said, son, I want you to know that if God calls you to be a pastor, you be a pastor. But I also want you to know that in addition to pastors, God needs and calls doctors, engineers, people in finance. God requires people in all walks of life to serve him, and he can use them. So years later, I became a clinical psychologist. That seemed to be the vocation that was calling me, and so I followed it. And I've had the opportunity over the last couple of years in particular to delve into the world of forensic psychology. And there, I meet with the Andrews and the Michaels and the Ryans of this generation. Incidentally, I should tell you that in that crossroads that defined my life that I didn't understand at the time, when I followed my dad home instead of hanging out with those new acquaintances, 
Not a year went by before Andrew and Michael were incarcerated yet again in the Hudson County Juvenile Detention Center. And my buddy Ryan, the kid with a good heart, dim of wit, uh, he met an untimely end as he and a couple of buddies cut class, got on the PATH train between Journal Square and New York, were engaged in some horseplay. Someone kicked Ryan in the chest, and somehow his body went through the glass and struck a steel beam, and he was killed instantly. I wonder what would have happened had my father not come home providentially at the right moment to steer me off a path. I wonder what would have happened had he not instilled mores in me that were sufficient based upon discipline and love so that in that moment when he intervened, rather than to rebel, I responded. So today I get this chance to meet with Andrews and Michaels and Ryans, and every week I'm at a different detention center or jail or prison throughout the state of New Jersey, sometimes in Pennsylvania. And I get to speak, hopefully, life uh, into the lives of these young men and older men. They come from different walks of life. You might be surprised. Some come from moneyed and wealthy backgrounds. Uh, they represent uh, all of the continuum of human experience. But as I start to peel back the layers of their lives, in addition to a whole heap of trauma, there's also a pretty common story that emerges. And that is that institutions that should have helped instill mores, virtues, values, ideals, failed. Communities failed. Families failed. Parents failed. Fathers failed. Father figures absolved themselves of the responsibility to those kids and said, I don't have a kinship bond with them. They come from a different neighborhood. We're not the same color. We, we don't share the same concerns. Ultimately, each of those young men and older men made choices. And they should not be absolved of the choices that they made. However, those choices were made within a certain envelope, a parameter based on what it is that they had seen. And when young men don't see values embodied, it becomes hard for them to follow such values. And rather than to be drawn to those who hold those values, they repel, like Andrew and Michael and Ryan did when they saw my father draw near. This past Tuesday, I was at uh, a courtroom in Philadelphia for a sentencing. The sentencing was for a young 15-year-old young man. Well, he was 15 when I met him, and I conducted a psychological evaluation with him at a juvenile detention center in Philadelphia. That was a couple of years ago. Now he's 18 years old. He's been uh, detained and then incarcerated uh, during that time. Over a 39-day span at the age of 15, this young man shot eight people, committed several armed robberies, and murdered an innocent bystander. If you look at the, the totality of, his, of what he has done, you say, well, here's a young man 
who clearly represents a danger to the community and to society and should be locked away for as long as possible. And you might be right. But if you looked into his life and peeled away layers, you'd see that every institution possible had failed that young man. Uh, my stock and trade is, is trauma. Whether I'm seeing individuals or couples or families in our group practice in Bayonne, or I'm meeting with individuals in detention centers and in prisons, trauma is what they confront. It's what they live. It what helps to determine the choices that they make. But I have to tell you that this young man is the most traumatic life I have ever known of. I won't even begin to tell you. Time wouldn't be sufficient to tell you all of the disastrous circumstances that he had to live through. But I will also never forget what his defense attorney said at the end of my testimony and once the prosecutor stood and asked the judge, Your Honor, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania requests that on the basis of all these crimes committed, that the just sentence be meted out. And that would be 480 years in the aggregate for all of his crimes. But the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania will be merciful, Your Honor, and ask you that you give him no less than 48 years to natural life. The defense attorney stands and he says, Your Honor, uh, we're asking for a period of 12 to 24 years on the basis of what you've heard Dr. Nunez share and all of this evidence that suggests that this, these crimes, as heinous as they were, and no one will contest that they weren't, did not occur in a vacuum. But then he said something that I will never forget. He stood and said, Your Honor, at this time, as I make my summation, typically what I do is to provide an opportunity for loved ones who are here in the gallery to come forward and to give witness and character statements about who this young man is or who he was so that you'd understand that and, and be merciful to him. But today, Your Honor, we won't be doing that. And the reason we won't be doing that, Your Honor, is because these people in this gallery, they all failed this young man and they should be sitting right next to him for sentencing. He said, I don't care what they think about it. This is the truth. This is the reality. He said, his guardian is here, his paternal grandmother. She knew that this young man was being sexually abused by his father, and she did nothing. She knew because her son, the child's father, was stolen from their home in Liberia and became, was conscripted into being a child soldier and told his mother when he came home, when she had gotten a ransom for him, that he had been sexually abused repeatedly by the soldiers who took him. And she did nothing. And so when they came to the United States and that man descended into substance abuse and brokenness in every sphere of domain of his life, she did nothing. And when that young man told his grandmother, every day when you go to work because dad is not a breadwinner, you are the primary provider in his home, he rapes me. And as he rapes me, he says, don't worry, it's okay. 
it happened to me too. And she did nothing. And when this man finally succumbed to all of the trauma and the substance abuse and died of a drug overdose, his older brother, that is the defendant's older brother, could have and should have become a father figure to him, knowing that the child was so broken and looking for validation and affirmation and healing, but he didn't. Instead, he took his little brother under his wing, and together they began to commit crimes. Your Honor, this brother should be sitting right here next to this young man, sentenced. And all the friends that are in the gallery, they've spent the last number of months lionizing the defendant, putting on social media songs, that celebrate what it was that he did to their opponents, to their adversaries. They failed him. They should be sitting right next to him for sentencing. Ultimately, the judge meted out her sentence. But what's the, what's the takeaway? What's the challenge for each of us? I share with you previously that uh, the proverb says that the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. That's the first half of that verse. The second half says, but the righteous are bold as lions. God is calling each of us as men, as representatives of institutions, as those who make up and lead families, as parents, as grandparents, as godparents, as uncles, as potential father figures, even beyond kinship bonds, to be bold as lions. Because if there is to be a generation that will have instilled in them godly mores, godly virtues, ideals, and values, it will only be as a result of them having seen a previous generation of men who embody Godly mores, ideals, and values. Not men who walk in perfection. I thank God that that's not what he's looking for. But men who strive consistently to live pure. Consistently to speak truth. Consistently to right wrongs. Consistently to follow the king. If there is an opportunity for a generation, even while every other institution has failed, for that generation to have rescue, to have a true north, it will be because men like you and like I take up this mantle and walk with lion boldness. May it be so in our lives. Will you bow your head? Father, we thank you in this day. We thank you that you are a rescuing God. We thank you that you are just. And in your justness, your justice requires that the wages of sin be death. But we thank you that in addition to accountability, you provide a means for redemption, and that these are two wings to the same aircraft, and no one will get very far unless both are in play. We thank you for that being borne out in our own lives. But Father, we ask for this generation, for these young people, 
where every institution in their lives has failed them, they need help. They need rescue. Father, help us to have lion boldness in the midst of this generation. Stand and be the men that you call us to be. In Jesus' name and for your sake, we pray, amen. Thank you so much for your time.